Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Just the other day, I was in a Christian bookshop browsing and I came across a, an interesting book. Um, it uh, was called A Defense of the Bible. But what uh, particularly caught my attention was that the author, Dr. Gary Baxter, had earned a PhD in synthetic organic chemistry from Monash University. So Monash University has quite a, a, a very strong reputation in the uh, science research uh, area. And uh, synthetic organic chemistry, of course, is um, an area related to where uh, chemists work together to actually construct new compounds or, or synthetically construct natural compounds. And th- this uh, you know, attracted my attention because you know, I work as an industrial chemist as well, research chemist as well, did for many years. So this was, um, I was I- interested in his uh, book there and I thought um, it was um, you know, very, very well done. Um, and what him, he has a, um, a website too, which is um, simply a defense of the Bible, or one word, um, .org, I think it, it might be. But anyway, if you Google that, you'd, you'd come across it. And one of the uh, things that he came on up was, uh, of course, he has quite a bit on the, the chemistry of why you know, evolution is impossible and and so forth. Um, and again, uh, coming from an or- organic chemist who's, you know, highly qualified in this area and the difficulties and well aware, he would be well aware of the difficulties uh, chemists have in trying to synthesise um, natural molecules. So we might find that there's a particular compound um, out there that occurs naturally that has a lot of ben- health benefits, but it's perhaps quite expensive to produce naturally, whereas if we can uh, come up with a series of chemical reactions and produce it synthetically um, in the laboratory, that may uh, be a lot cheaper. And uh, particularly for compounds that occur only in very, very small amounts um, in, in nature. And so, you know, the, the area of synthetic chemistry um, is, you know, very relevant and very much related to the claims of evolutionists. And one of the sections that he has on his uh, website, I noticed, was that 15, and he calls it 15 Questions for Evolutionists. And actually there's a little booklet that is put out by Creation Ministries International, and which has uh, the, the essentially the same title, and that, so their website is of course www.creation.com, and that has a lot of really really good resources. But I thought these questions are, uh, are very relevant today, and I, I think they. Um, challenge really the mainstream dogma that is particularly taught in our schools and universities that life evolved. And so I'd just like to go through some of these because um, I, I found them quite interesting and a really good summary of the major problems that 
evolutionists have in trying to make a claim that life occurred just by natural random processes. When we really look at the chemistry, we can see it's absolutely impossible for that to occur. And it, it points very, very strongly to the existence of God. One of the other things I found quite interesting in the book, while I think about it too, his book again is called A Defense of the Bible, was that he looked at the origin and claims of the other major faiths of the world, such as Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, and uh, examined the, the basis and the origin of those, and also, and also Christianity. And I, as I uh, look through that uh, uh, section as well, I think he uh, develops, Dr. Gary Baxter, develops a very compelling argument that Christianity has um, supernatural and, and divine origins. It, it fits what we observe best out of all those faiths, uh, particularly when we look at how those faiths originated. The origins of Christianity and the claims of Christianity are the most credible and the most scientifically viable, in my view, as well. So one of the first questions is, of course, how did life originate? So that, that, that's a challenge for evolutionists because when we consider, for example, Professor Paul Davies, who um, was a very well-known physicist and, and, and astrophysicist, and he points out nobody knows how a mixture of lifeless chemicals spontaneously organise themselves into the first living cell. Now, another uh, professor, Andrew Knoll, at, um, who's a professor of biology at Harvard, he's quoted as saying, we really don't know how life originated on this planet. So here we have some top scientists saying, look, really, nobody knows how a mixture of chemicals could form the first living cell because several hundred proteins are needed. And he, um, if you look at the statistics, even if every atom in the universe were an experiment with all the correct amino acids uh, present for every possible molecular vibration in the supposed evolutionary age of the universe, not even an average size functional protein would form. So what he's saying is when we look at the probability of even just some of the a single complex viable protein forming, it's for, well, it has a, a life function, a life-supporting function, it's impossible. So how could hundreds of those proteins form, let alone you know, all the other issues with uh, you know, protecting the cell from the environment and so forth? The second point that he raises is how did the DNA code originate? Now, we know that this code is a really sophisticated language system with essentially what we would understand as letters and words, except they're not um, using the symbols we use. They use chemical 
molecules or little uh, chemical groups that represent these or function as these letters and then in combination function as these words. And the meanings of those words is unrelated to the chemical properties of the of the letters themselves. Now this is a this is a very important function. So what he essentially is saying here or what that claim is saying is that the properties of the actual chemicals in the DNA code don't so much play a, a role. Their physical properties or chemical properties don't so much play a role. It's more that they represent information. They carry information because really there's only the, the four main compounds that we breathe, the 8A, C, T and G. And these are, are little chemical molecules or functional groups um, that and what their function is not so much to give chemical properties but to carry a code. And that code, of course, is read by a code reader, ribosome. And um, it's very obvious when we look at uh, computer programming and so much effort now has gone into computer programming and, and of course, a lot of effort goes into hacking computer programs too and getting in. We know with these programs they're, they're quite sophisticated and they need a programmer and yet none of them come anywhere near the sophistication of the code in the DNA code and the language and the codes within the codes. So again, the DNA code itself, is a ma- the origin of that code is a major challenge for evolutionists because, you know, if this code is supposed to have formed randomly, how can it relate to a real real world? So just like when we write the letters A, P, P, L, E, right, in our mind we can then have a picture of an apple. But that doesn't look anything like an apple. A, P, P, L, E doesn't look anything like an apple. Or the word C, R, A, B. They don't look like a crab, you know, that little... Uh, animal that uh, runs around with nippers on on the seashore. So these are codes that carry information. The information is only meaningful um, if you understand the code. So again, if uh, we write down Z-I-V-I-S, and most of us uh, in Western countries, or well, in you know English-speaking countries, we look at that word. It doesn't mean anything. Um, we don't get a picture of any particular animal. But if we came from Latvia, that northern European country there, we would say, oh, yes, that's fish. Or maybe Russian and uh, some of the associated languages would pick it up as well. And this is, again, it's a code. And unless we have the appropriate code reader, it doesn't really work. The third uh, point that is raised is how could mutations... And these are accidental copying mistakes, so where the DNA letters are exchanged or deleted or added or genes, they're sort of more extensive pieces of DNA duplicated or chromosomes are inverted. How could these accidental mistakes that are random create the huge volumes of information in the DNA of living things that work? 
And this is the thing, you know, we've got random accidental things happening that can create huge volumes of meaningful information. Now, computer programmers don't sort of think, righto, we'll get a whole lot of two- and three-year-olds and we'll set them down and we'll get them to write code with the hope that sooner or later we're going to produce a really fantastic code or we're going to produce a new computer game or, you know, some new uh, computer, you know, uh, instrument control function or something like that. We, we don't do that. We have to deliberately plan things. Just random typing out code isn't going to make anything that, that works. And I think... When we look at all the different species that have existed, the hundreds of millions of different species that have existed, and most of them are extinct now, um, it's believed you know, that only 2% of all the living things that have been created at some stage are alive in the world today. So it's, you know, we've lost all the rest, have become extinct. And when we look at the huge amount of code there that works, and it all fits together, you know. It, it's a huge challenge. You know, the other point is, of course, that mutations are known for their destructive effect, including over a 1,000 human diseases such as haemophilia. Very rarely are any sort of mutation helpful. And so, as he, um, you know, points out, scrambling DNA information isn't going to make a new type of uh, creature. Uh, particularly, you know, something that is really complex and functional, such as the 32-component rotary motor like uh, ATP synthase, which produces energy current for life. Um, the fourth point that he raises is, why is natural selection, a principle recognised by creationists, taught as evolution, as if it explains the origin of the diversity of life? And, of course, we observe natural selection, but natural selection destroys information. It selects just the information that is best under those particular circumstances, and then the rest is destroyed. So it, it really is reducing the amount of viable, available information. And... Actually, by definition, it's a selective process, selecting from already existing information. So natural selection doesn't produce new information, which is what the theory of evolution requires. Um, sure, it can explain the survival of um, certain um, genes, that, well, explain why certain genes benefit creatures more in certain environments, but it can't explain the arrival of the first of the genes in the first place, and the you know so sure we observe natural selection. That's it's no problem. It's no problem for creationists. Matter of fact, it explains that in the beginning God created this massive amount of genetic diversity with all this code already there, and we've gradually been losing it. 
over time. It's been running down, again, through this natural selection, often through, you know, competitive bad forces. And, of course, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says the whole universe is groaning under sin. It's running down as a consequence of, of evil. And when we think most of these natural selection processes um, uh, and, and negative processes, they're processes that destroy life, and that was not God's principle in the beginning. Fifth one they raise is how did new biochemical pathways which involve multiple enzymes working together in sequence originate? And this... As a, uh, this is a major problem for evolutionists, and I think you know often um, it seems from when you read the writings of biologists and this sort of thing, they just don't understand how enzymes work and the complexity of the biochemistry that underpins the changes that they claim can can happen. But again, as an organic, this guy as an organic chemist obviously can understand and and really appreciate this that. Enzymes are compounds that increase the activation energy of a particular reaction and allow it to occur under conditions where it would not normally occur. So that way you can get a chemical reaction to go that would not normally go. And enzymes are very important in biochemical systems, in living systems, for enabling chemical reactions to go in a particular stable environment that was otherwise stable. And these enzymes play a crucial role. Without them, the um, biochemistry wouldn't work, the reactions wouldn't work. But these enzymes themselves are complex chemical molecules themselves. So the key here is that a complex chemical molecule has to form that is just the right molecule to exert the right activation energy to allow this other reaction to occur. Now, what he points out is that in many biochemical pathways, they involve multiple enzymes. That is, you've, you've got to have these specialist molecules there to make these chemical reactions go. But how did these specialist molecules form? That are very complex and often molecules that would not form by themselves in nature. The chemical reactions to form the enzymes wouldn't occur in nature. This is a major, major challenge for the theory of evolution that you, you know, that is sort of rarely addressed. And essentially what it says is evolution is absolutely impossible and didn't happen. These things had to be created. The whole system had to be created. Another point, he, point six, he points out, living things look like they were designed. So how do evolutionists know that they were not designed? You know, this is a really good point. And he quotes Richard Dawkins as saying, biology is the study of complicated things that have the appearance of having been designed with a purpose. Huh. I mean, this is it. Science is based on observations. We observe that it, all this overall evidence is designed, but then they say, oh, no, it only appears to be designed because it occurred by random processes. I mean, man, does that then say, well, there only appears to be a law of gravity. Really, it's just a random thing that's just a probability thing that, you know, two masses are going to be attracted. Yeah. Uh, where does it all stop the ridiculousness of the theory of evolution? I don't know. Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the double helix structure of DNA, wrote... Biologists must constantly keep in mind what they see was not designed but rather evolved. So here he's saying is that 
We've got all this evidence, but hang on, we've got to keep denying it. Um, and really, the evolutionists have a major problem because when we look into living things, the design is overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming. And so, you know, he points out that nobody objects when archaeologists find a piece of pottery and say that points to, you know, human design. Look, there are other major problems too. How did cells, uh, multicellular life originate? That's problem number seven. How did cells adapt to individual survival, learn to cooperate and specialise to create complex plants and animals? See, so you start off with your little single cell organism. How did that form multicellular? These are all problems that evolution really can't solve. It doesn't have answers for. How did uh, sexual reproduction originate? Um, and um, it's so how could, you know, we know the, the specific reproductive and um, key lock type um, systems of the uh, sexual reproduction systems originate. You know, how could one form by random chance without the other and the, and the system continue to, to live? So, again, this is a major problem that evolutionists haven't, they don't have an answer for. There isn't an answer for, but it powerfully points to a creator, created systems, systems that were created. Another interesting one, point number nine, is um, why are the expected countless millions of transitional fossils missing? And Darwin noted this problem and it still remains. When you look at the evolutionary family trees in textbooks, really they're based on imagination, not fossil evidence. In fact, the famous Harvard paleontologist, and he was an evolutionist, Stephen Jay Gould, wrote... The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as a trade secret of paleontology. So this is what he's talking about, the extreme rarity, extreme rarity. And I, I think most of these transitional fossils that are claimed, they're a little bit dubious because they're all complete functioning animals. They're not one changing into another one. Um, there's major, major problems with that. The other thing is, and point number 10, he points out, there are so many living fossils that we find today. In other words, creatures today that are the same as the creatures we find in the fossil record, hundreds of millions of years old, and yet they haven't changed. They're exactly the same. Um, and so what he's saying is, okay, over hundreds of millions of years, all these things have evolved into, you know, worms have eventually turned into humans, but yet we've got other creatures over the same time frame that haven't changed a bit. And so this is this claim that, you know, worms eventually evolved into humans sort of thing. But hang on, why, why aren't all the others changing? Why haven't they changed? And when we look at it, we see there are so many repair mechanisms um, in the DNA system anyway, that these mutations and evolution to produce this is really impossible. What we would expect is the fossil record to remain unchanged, and that's what we actually observe. 
Point number 11 was how did biochemistry create the mind, intelligence, meaning, altruism and morality? Um, so what's the purpose and meaning to human life? And evolution has no explanation for that. No purpose, no meaning, no hope for the future and particularly for the mind too. And remember, the mind is non-material. Evolution is working with chemical molecules, what this chemist is talking about. The mind, our thoughts, is non-material, totally non-material. It's a major problem. Another thing I think is an important one is um, why is evolution tolerated? Um, there's the Darwinian explanation of things is just, you know, too supple. Um, it's, it, there's so much evidence against it and yet it is still tolerated. And it goes on in point 13, where are the scientific breakthroughs due to evolution? You know, you know, most of the great scientists in the past actually were creationists. Now, of course, since the 1960s, evolution's been taught um, as a mainstream subject in most of the university science courses now. Um, and so this then has got those uh, people have gone on to be the teachers of the current generations and it's, it's swamped it. And you, you have these claims, you know, that, you know, if we didn't teach evolution, it would put science behind. Well, where's the evidence for that? It's interesting, Dr. Mark Kirshner, chair of the Department of Systems Biology at the Harvard Medical School, stated, in fact, over the last hundred years, almost all of biology has proceeded independent of evolution, except for evolutionary biology itself. Molecular biology biochemistry physiology have not taken evolution into account at all. Uh, Dr. Skill wrote, it is our knowledge of how these organisms actually operate, not speculations about how they may have arisen millions of years ago, that is essential to doctors, veterinarians, farmers. And that was a quote from him. Evolution actually hinders medical discovery. And so he raises... Um, yeah, the question is raised. Then why do schools and universities teach evolution so dogmatically, stealing time from experimental biology that would benefit humankind? Point number 14 was science involves experimenting to figure out how things work, how they operate. Why is evolution, a theory about history, taught as if it is the same as operational science? And the last one is, his 15th point is, why is a fundamentally religious idea, a dogmatic belief system that fails to explain the evidence taught in science classes? And it's, uh, it's written here uh, on the website uh, and again on creation.com as well. Karl Popper, famous philosopher of science, said, Darwinism is not a testable scientific theory, but a metaphysical, or that would be religious, research program. And Michael Roos, an evolutionist science philosopher, admitted evolution is a religion. And so if this was true of evolution in the beginning, it's still true of evolution today. And if you can't teach religion in science classes, why is evolution taught? There's some pretty serious challenges, aren't they, really, as to why we tolerate the teaching of evolution in our schools today. The Bible offers the best explanation 
for why we are here. But more than that, it offers hope. And it offers the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Remember, if you want to re-listen to this program or um, and the other programs, just Google 3ABN Australia, all one word, 3abnaustralia.org.au and click on the listen button. You've been listening to Faith and Science. I'm Dr John Ashton. Have a great day. been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.